Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. The principles of individual economic and political freedom, private enterprise, and limited representative government were fundamental to the vision of our founder, Herbert Hoover, and remain as compelling today as they were more than a century ago. A preeminent research center, the institution has remained steadfast in its commitment to finding solutions grounded in history, data, and logic to the many difficult challenges we face. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These brief briefings provide an opportunity to hear directly from some of our distinguished scholars on a wide range of domestic and international issues. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you find today's discussion valuable. As a reminder, we will be taking to audience questions, and I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's discussion is with healthcare scholar Kate Bundorf. Kate is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, an associate professor of health research and policy at the Stanford University School of Medicine, a Stanford Health Policy Fellow, and a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economics and Policy Research. She is also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, Economic research. Kate, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Great. Uh, Kate, your specialty is hospitals and doctors, basically. Tell us how the pandemic has affected uh, hospitals and physicians. Well, Tom, it's been it's been a really, you know, kind of dramatic and interesting process, right? So, and you can really kind of think of it as two separate worlds of healthcare providers. And one world we, we saw on TV or in the news, um, and that was the world of hospitals that were, were essentially kind of overrun by COVID patients. This is mostly New York, and we think about hospitals, you know, having uh, lots of patients, uh, worries about them being inadequately staffed, running out of ventilators and PPE. So that was, you know, obviously an incredibly important, and, um, uh, you know, and uh, you know, big issue that that hit those folks. But then there's there was another world of healthcare providers that that kind of had the other problem, right? And that was a very dramatic drop in demand for their services. Um, of course, we know that hospitals were advised or instructed to postpone elective procedures. Um, but really, the you know the and, and they did, and that explains part of it. But but anecdotal reports, you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, started coming out that it wasn't just the elective procedures. It seemed like there were you know fewer strokes, there were fewer heart attacks, there were fewer cancer patients. Um, so 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 it seemed like it went beyond those elective procedures. Even when we think about office-based uh, visits, um, there was a report that came out showing that. You know, from the beginning of the pa pandemic over the first couple months to the peak of the office visits declined about 60 to 70 percent. Um, the CDC just came out with data fairly recently showing that there is a 40 percent decline in ED visits, right? So people were not, you know, for the for for other healthcare providers, people were not coming in to see their physician, or maybe physicians were saying were reluctant to um, to bring patients in, you know, during this time period. And, th and this, is, this is really important, right? It's important for two reasons, right? So this is because these providers get paid fee for service, this has a financially devastating impact for many of them, right? If you're not providing services, you don't get fees, right? So a 67, 60 to 70% drop in your visits is a huge shock to your revenue. Um, it's also important in thinking about patient health, 
right? So, uh, you know, sometimes we worry about the services that we don't provide aren't high value and aren't particularly effective. Oftentimes they are very effective, right? So the key issue here is going forward, or one of the key uh, research issues and delivery issues is trying to, you know, figure out which of those services, uh, types of services weren't being provided and getting those patients back in the door. Yeah. Kate, help me put some uh, numbers on this, these, these, categor these categories. You said there was one category of hospital that was overrun with treating COVID-19 patients. There was another category of hospital that basically sat dormant for four to eight weeks as it made itself available to deal with COVID patients. What, can you give me relative percentages of those two groups? Yeah, I would love to, Tom, but I really can't, right? <laughs> so I think that, um, uh, uh, I will go out on a limb here and say, I think there were more of the, I can't remember whether it was the former or the latter, there were probably more that um, over-prepared in the sense that you know, they were dormant and um, fewer that were really in you know, crisis mode um, and inundated with, health, with, uh, with patients. Yeah, got it. Uh, I was struck by your statistics about the decline in office visits and emergency room visits. I think neither, I'm not a physician. What, what would cause emergency room visits to decline? Is it just that people weren't going to work or they weren't driving as much? Or do we know what drove that decline in emergency room visits? Yeah, I think we're, I mean, it's a great question. We're still early um, in the data surrounding the pandemic and that you know, that's a fantastic question. So you can think of, you know, a couple different channels um, by which this might happen, right? So as you said, you know, we're driving less and, you know, maybe going outside less, maybe uh, going, having, undertaking fewer risky activities. So maybe, you know, maybe we just didn't need those emergency room visits. We weren't getting in accidents and, you know, that explanation. Um, the other explanation, which is kind of more worrisome for patient health is, you know, serious things were happening to me, for example, and I was nervous, you know, I was, you know, sitting at home uh, feeling sick, but being, um, you know, uh, concerned that if I went to the emergency department, I was possibly exposing myself to COVID, you know, at a time that we, when we really didn't know that much um, about the disease. So I think we're still just trying to disentangle. Um, oh, and then I guess a third category is often, you know, and prior to the pandemic, um, you know, some people use the emergency room as their primary source of care, right, for primary care services. And, you know, for those folks, maybe, um, you know, they decided that it probably wasn't a, a great idea um, at this time to, you know, to use it in that way. So I think we're just at the beginning to, of disentangling, um, you know, what was happening there and, you know, what were the impacts on patients. Yeah. Kate, I probably know the answer to this, but do we, do we, is there any evidence yet or do we know whether uh, the, the lockdown and the shutdown or the unavailability of healthcare delivery during this period of time has led to uh, bad health outcomes for people? I, I think we, we just don't know yet. And there are, you know, we've already talked about, you know, a couple different channels, right, that would suggest that, you know, we're not sure what the ultimate in impact would be. Um, you know, a couple other things that we haven't talked about, um, you know, there's some evidence that kids that were supposed to be vaccinated weren't getting their vaccine, you know, their shots, right? So that's, you know, something that we worry about um, in the long term. So on most of these stories, um, really uh, another thing is how long will this drop last? Right. So if this is a very short term drop and, and from, you know, the study I said I referenced with this 
70% decline. A follow-up study there showed that office visits were starting to increase. That's consistent with what the folks at Stanford are saying, that their outpatient visits are coming back and they're starting to get people in the door. If, if healthcare use comes back quickly, especially for the patients, you know, for whom these visits are really important, um, then the impact on health will be lower, right? If people are still nervous, you know, about coming in and seeing their healthcare provider, um, and, you know, even if the doors are open, people aren't going, that could have, you know, more severe implications for our health. Yeah, interesting. If you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's Virtual Policy Briefing with Kate Bundorf. Uh, Kate, some states are reporting increases in cases. Uh, is this just going to lead to another wave of a, a, a hospital capacity being allocated across the competing demands of treating COVID-19 or providing and delivering ordinary healthcare services? Yeah, I, you know, once again, I think we, we don't know what is, you know, what is our, when we look at hospital cases, um, or I'm sorry, if we look at uh, COVID cases, we're always uh, uh, thinking about the relationship to COVID testing, right? So as COVID testing goes up, we might get, you know, it seems like we would have more cases, um, not because there are actually more cases, but because we found more cases, right? So it's, I think, you know, we want to pay attention to the number of cases. We want to keep that, um, that issue um, in the back or maybe in, even in the front of our minds when we're looking at that data. Um, but probably what is a better marker is when we start to see hospitals increase, right? Then we have a better sense of what's going on. The challenge, you know, for the development of policy, especially around shelter in place and, you know, opening the economy is that hospitals are a lagging indicator, you know, after cases, right? So we have to wait a little longer and the, um, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the infection rates are a little more advanced by the time we see, um, by this time we see the hospital hospitalizations increasing. Yeah. So um, kind of look, you know, it, it from this current perspective, really close to the original outbreak of the pandemic, what lessons do you think we've learned and how can hospitals and physicians be better prepared moving forward for the kind of challenges that a pandemic or an emerging or a, uh, a second wave of the pandemic would have for us? Yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an important to kind of think about, um, you know, the uh, second wave versus, you know, kind of a next pandemic. So let's think a little bit about a second wave. I think that hospitals and healthcare providers have, have, have learned a ton, right? So they um, responded to the first wave, um, you know, figured out how to deliver care. If you, you know, look at the academic literature on, um, you know, thinking about how to, looking at how to treat patients, right? Like things have exploded, right? And there are, there's been a, you know, a huge movement forward in understanding with the resources that we have right now, you know, we don't have uh, the treatments that we would want, but there has been a lot of learning on how to manage uh, these patients. Um, I think there has also been a lot of learning on the part of hospitals in particular on how to manage a surge, right? The, the hospitals that experienced the surge, you know, clearly they learned a lot um, and they share those lessons with the hospitals that, that didn't. And even the hospitals that didn't, you know, there was a lot of effort that went into thinking about, well, how do I convert beds, right? How do I make sure that I can respond quickly to an increase in cases, right? So I think that on the delivery side, uh, you know, hopefully we won't have, um, uh, you know, surges, but, you know, if we do, I think we will be uh, better prepared. 
uh, for those. In the longer term, you know, we, I, I think we obviously need to, um, you know, once we're through this crisis, you know, sit down and rethink, you know, how we're going to respond to the next crisis. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, well, hopefully we won't have a next pandemic very soon. Right? So let's just put that out there. Um, but, you know, the next time we do, um, you know, we are probably in a better positioned to uh, think about all the policy trade-offs and the ways um, that we're going to respond, you know, if only because we have more evidence now, right? And we can incorporate that evidence into our decision-making. Yeah. We have a question from Christian who asked, why did so many states vastly overestimate the amount of people that would need hospital beds during the pandemic? Um, you know, so to be straightforward, right, like, I don't know, um, but it would, um, I, I would say that there was an incredible amount of uncertainty, right? And, um, you know, if you uh, look at New York, you know, versus other areas of the country. I think that, you know, places were not sure whether they were going to be New York or whether they were going to be, you know, Palo Alto, for example. Um, so I think that uncertainty, you know, in the face of that uncertainty, you know, folks had to make plans, right? So, and they, you know, they, they basically planned for the worst. Yeah, got it. And the evidence around the world was highly variable as well. Uh, Italy and uh, other countries being examples of bad cases. Exactly. Got it. If you just joined us, you're listening to Hoover Senior Fellow Kate Bundorf. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at our website, hoover.org. Kate, we've talked a little bit uh, uh, the delivery about the delivery of healthcare. What about insurance markets? How did COVID-19 impact the health insurance market? Yeah, so the, so the kind of the elephant in the room for insurance markets is um, is unemployment, right? So as many folks probably know, employment is really the backbone of our system for the working age population. Most people who have health insurance who are under 65 um, have it through an employer. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, that creates a tension, right? Because when you, um, if you have your health insurance through an employer, when you lose your job, as you know, many people did, we had a huge, uh, you know, historic uh, increase in unemployment at the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, if you don't have your your job, you know you don't have your health insurance. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that is you know people are a little bit often unaware of is actually the kind of the dollar value of the insurance that they have from their employer. So the average premium for employer sponsored health insurance for a family plan now is you know just a bit over twenty thousand dollars. So when you think about losing your job, not only do you lose your wage, but you also, if you had a family plan, lose twenty thousand dollars worth of health insurance. Yeah. Employment insurance is, you know, focused on your wages, um, you know, that leaves, you know, a health insurance as, you know, a separate set of a separate set of programs. Yeah. Right. So uh, uninsurance is is really accompanied um, or unemployment really, you know, can lead to uh, high levels of uninsurance. Yeah. Was there anything in the CARES Act? Uh, I know the CARES Act, for example, provided a subsidy to state-funded unemployment insurance. Was there a subsidy for paying for health insurance by, by people who were newly unemployed? Yeah, so this is, this is uh, you know, the uh, really thinking about policy in this area really kind of takes you down the rabbit hole of the very tricky and Byzantine uh, aspects of our health insurance system, right? So, so, you know, let's think of a couple examples. So one is if the, if the funding in the CARES Act caused your employer to keep you employed, right, yeah. um, then you might, you know, still have your health insurance. Um, 
if your employer didn't keep you on, you know, the mechanisms, you know, were less direct and not explicitly related to the CARES Act. If your employer, if you actually lose your job, you know, you have a couple options facing you. So one is that you could continue your employer-sponsored health insurance on your own, right? That means that if I, I will make a payment to my former employer for keeping that coverage I had, that, that payment is the premium that the employer paid on my behalf um, when I had employer-sponsored health insurance plus a, you know, a small percentage for an administrative fee. So if I've lost my job, you know, that's a pretty good chunk of change, right? If I'm going to do that, um, you know, I, that if I'm going to, you know, feel like I can afford that, that's probably in part based on my expectations of reemployment and what's going to happen, right? Is this a permanent, you know, a very long lasting income shock for me, or is this just going to be a, you know, a little bump in the road? Um, there are, you know, in the last recession, uh, we know in the Great Recession, a lot of people lost their coverage, um, but things, things are different now. We have the Affordable Care Act and we have, um, you know, a system of states that expanded Medicaid and, you know, all states across the country that adopted health insurance exchanges. That creates another set of mechanisms, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, basically a safety net, a set of choices that we didn't have um, in the last recession, and those are other places that folks who lose their job can buy health insurance. Mm -hmm. And is there, a, is there a funding mechanism to subsidize the purchase of health insurance in those either ACA or Medicaid or another exchange? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. So once again, as in all things in health insurance, this is complicated. Yeah. So uh, let's start, you know, kind of at the top and think about COBRA. Uh, COBRA generally is um, not subsidized, right? Um, in the last recession, Congress passed um, a uh, law that allowed for a 65% subsidization of COBRA coverage. And um, my understanding is that is something that is currently under discussion now. Would there be a subsidy? Will there be a subsidy? And, and um, how big will that subsidy be? How big will that subsidy be? When people um, buy coverage in the exchange, they, they, they may get a subsidy. The extent to which they get a subsidy is dependent on their income. If they have you know, higher levels of income, close to 400% of poverty, for example, um, that is a, a smaller subsidy. But if they're closer to say 1.5 times, uh, their income is closer to 1.5 times the poverty level, uh, they get a larger subsidy. One thing that's important to note about the exchanges is that if you're going to buy uh, coverage in, in an exchange, if you lose your employer-sponsored coverage, you're eligible. Usually, you'd have to wait for the next open enrollment period, but you'd be eligible if you um, lose your employer-sponsored coverage, but you're eligible for a, a, a short window of time, right? So some states have opened that up, others haven't. You know, that's one thing to, you know, that's, uh, to check out and keep in mind if you're thinking of that as a mechanism. Medicaid is designed for people who have the lowest levels of income. Uh, Medicaid does not have, you can, you can sign up for Medicaid anytime and um, become, you know, if your state has expanded its Medicaid program and, um, you know, you don't have to wait for a particular, you know, you don't have to do it within a particular period of time. You know, you can sign up whenever you're income eligible. Yeah. Okay, I have a couple questions from uh, Mark and Lenard. They're, they're the same question, which is, uh, are there any projections about how many people have or are likely to lose their insurance coverage and what that, and, and Mark kind of wants to know what that effect will have on hospital physician revenue as well as overall population health? Yeah, uh, these, are, uh, these are, these are great questions. Um, 
I'm uh, feeling a little bit bad because I don't have the number off the top of my head, but let's say it's um, uh, there are, uh, probably the best place to look for this uh, right now is there is a report from the Urban Institute and they have, you know, a health insurance simulation model and they cranked up their model and they, you know, they figured out the number of people that they thought were likely to lose their health insurance. And then they also, you know, tried to do some simulations on the number of people that would um, uh, enroll in these different types of coverage, right? And, you know, the, like, uh, you know, don't quote me on this, I'm ballparking this, uh, let's say roughly like a third, a third, a third, like a third might end up in Medicaid, a third might end up in um, uh, exchanges, and, you know, a third of those people who lost their coverage might end up uninsured. Once again, if you want the uh, very precise estimates, you know, you have to, we'll go to the Urban Institute report and look at, uh, and look at it. Um, but the second point in the um, in the the the, quest, the the person with the question made um, is also really important, right? So as we are shifting sources of coverage across the population, um, in general, we're shifting people out of private health insurance, and we're shifting people into Medicaid and um, uh, exchange coverage. Rates of payment to healthcare providers are much higher from private health insurance uh, than they are from uh, certainly from Medicaid and even from Medicare or exchange plans tend to have lower uh, payments on average as, as well. And those, you know, and those differences can often be very big, right? So, so this is kind of a, a, a second order stress on, on healthcare providers as well, right? So if you think if you're a hospital or you're a physician, now if a large portion of your patients or a substantive portion of your patients are shifting from private health insurance to Medicaid, that means you're going, getting lower payment rates um, for you know, the care that you provide to all those patients. So that is an important um, you know, change and a potentially important stress for the healthcare system as well. To put some numbers on this there, if I, if I get this, if I recall, I think there are this short of 40 million new unemployment claims since the pandemic started. So you're thinking about a third are uninsured, a third have gone into Medicaid. Um, as in all things in health insurance, um, I, not quite that simple, right? <laughs> so, sorry. Um, so, so, uh, what, and I'll, I'll be quick, but let me just give you a sense of the complexity, right? So um, I am married. I, my uh, spouse ha gets employer-sponsored health insurance uh, from his job, let's say, and I lose my job. You know, some of the people might move into coverage from, you know, someone else in their family, right? Some people, you know, might be eligible for other, uh, you know, other, other types of coverage. You know, but, let, but let's say, yeah, roughly, um, you know, maybe 75% uh, of people are looking for something new, you know, in the, in the categories that we talked about, and maybe a third, a third, a third, you know, end up in those three different categories. Yeah. Just being uh, careful here, right, to you know, not, not lock myself into an estimate. No, I hear you. It's complex. And, and Joe kind of asked the following question, I guess, which is, why don't we make it less complex? She, she wonders, do you think that the loss of health insurance is tied to unemployment? Uh, will generate support for a bipartisan proposal for Medicare expansion or universal health health care. In other words, yeah. I guess the problem is healthcare is tied to employment, and, and employment is the big problem. Just just separate the link. Yeah. So this is um, I think this is a really important question, and this um, you know the pandemic that we're in 
or the, situ the pandemic and the associated recession that we're in now is a really important test of our, you know, of the ACA essentially, right? So uh, part of the reason, you know, we put in place these, um, uh, these safety net programs was, you know, to make it easier when people, you know, experience this kind of disruption in their lives. Um, the complexity that we have here, I think, is an issue, right? In the short term, um, you know, I feel strongly that we really need to kind of get the word out and let people, help people understand, like, today, right now, what are they eligible for and what are their options? I think that is incredibly important. And going forward, I, I think that we do have to think about ways to make these transitions a little bit easier, right? Um, I'm not sh I, I'm not sure that would translate, you know, I, I guess I should say, I think there are multiple ways to do that, right? And, you know, like a, a, a Medicare for all is not the only way to do that. You know, there are other steps that we could take about the way we create subsidies and the way subsidies move with people across different types of coverage. You know, there are ways to keep a competitive private health insurance and, you know, make it easier for folks to move in situations in which they, um, you know, experience these types of unanticipated events, right? So, so you know, I, you know, to kind of summarize, I think this issue is very important and this is a place where we need, you know, to really kind of think about creative solutions, right, to, uh, uh, to address this. Yeah. So is, are there any other problems that the pandemic has kind of uh, shown light on? Uh, are there any other problems in the healthcare system that the pandemic has un uncovered? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are, you know, there are lots of good things and there are lots of problems in our healthcare system. And in many ways, it's, you know, magnified uh, many of those um, on both sides. I would say, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting uh, to think about in the context of the pandemic is I think that, you know, even before the pandemic, you know, many people, including myself, um, you know, believed that one of the things that would help our healthcare system or, you know, make it better is if we could shift providers towards, we could change basically the way that we pay providers, right? Instead of paying fee for service, and instead of paying hospitals and physicians a fee for basically every admission or everything that we do, we could move towards, you know, what people often refer to as more value-based payment, right? We could, um, you know, pay at the population level per person, you know, right. and design those very carefully to think about, you know, issues of selection and, and whatnot, but, but kind of shift pro pro providers away from volume, as people always say, and toward value. So if yeah. we stop and we think about this in the, in the context of the pandemic, this is, this is actually really po powerful, right? So uh, take the example of a primary care physician. So yep. a primary care physician is getting paid fee for service. And when, you know, that when, when they experienced that drop in services, right, they experienced a direct drop in fees, they were getting paid nothing. If the mm -hmm. primary care physician were um, uh, instead, you know, paid some sort of capitated payment per person enrolled in their panel, they would not have experienced, um, you know, that drop in revenue. The revenue would have kept coming from, you know, from the, uh, 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 you know, from the insurance company. So, you know, when, you know, when, uh, uh, so fee for service uh, was was good until there were no services, <laughs> right? And then, um, and then that was a problem. The other thing that I think is kind of under, you know, really um, underappreciated here is, let's say that, you know, uh, let's take the example of telehealth, right? So um, a very important uh, thing that the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Service Services did um, in the very beginning of the pandemic 
was uh, say, we will pay for telehealth visits. And that was incredibly important, right? So people can't come in to get their visits. Now they can do telehealth. Um, you know, there's lots of controversy over, you know, in what situations does telehealth work and what, when it doesn't. But, you know, I think it's pretty easy to see that if you can't or you shouldn't come in to see your healthcare provider, it probably has some benefits. Um, but the, 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 you know, the way that was implemented or what was a huge push in that movement was the fact that CMS said, yes, I will pay for a telehealth visit, right? And that kind of opened the floodgates to telehealth visit, visits. If hospitals and physicians were paid, um, let's take the, stay with my primary care physician. If the primary care physician were paid by capitation, the primary care physician just could have done that. Right, without CMS standing in the way, right? So um, I really think that these, you know, if we change the way that we pay um, healthcare providers, we'll change the incentives for innovation and in many cases for the better, right? Providers will be more nimble, they'll be able to, you know, respond in ways that don't, um, you know, don't require getting a code, right, to get paid. Yeah, interesting. Sticking with the idea of innovation, uh, have you seen, you, you, you talked about telehealth telemedicine uh, growing and during this crisis. Are you seeing any other innovations uh, that, are, that are taking place during this health care crisis and is CMS supporting them through payment strategies and reimbursements? Yeah, I, I think that is probably, um, is probably the most obvious one, you know, that came out, uh, that, that, that came out through CMS. I think that is, um, uh, you know, as I said, the, the one that was, that is kind of on everyone's minds. I think, you know, if we think about innovation, you know, hospitals and providers, you know, they did lots of things behind the scenes, right, to change the way they were del delivering care. And I think the, the way to think about that going forward is, um, is you know, can we, uh, you know, can we adopt payment systems that really encourage that kind of innovation, right? So can we keep that going forward, whether through CMS, whether through private insurers, um, you know, when you think it, you know, if we go back and we think about uh, the private insurers, um, the private insurers had already charged premiums, right? And then healthcare use went down, right? So uh, the people, you know, normally the private insurers are at risk for the increase in healthcare use. You know, yeah. that means that they benefit from the decline in healthcare use, right? So this was really, you know, uh, um, you know, this. Uh, kind of helped in some sense the bottom line of private insurers, but we have seen private insurers respond in ways that um, are helping um, their, uh, the, the hospitals and more, uh, and, and to a larger degree, the physicians with whom they contract, you know, kind of weather this storm, right? So that's another example of the types of, um, you know, policies and private sector um, initiatives that uh, have uh, you know, uh, emerged as, as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, David asked the following question. Might the current crisis lead to an equalization on the tax treatment of individually purchased medical insurance with corporate purchased? Um, it's a possibility. Um, I think, uh, you know, economists, um, you know, we're not often beloved, right? But economists have been talking about this for, I would say, you know, probably 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and it's generally a policy that economists are in favor of. Um, so I, I suppose that is a possibility. I guess that's the type of thing that I would have in mind, you know, if we, uh, you know, if we recognize that, um, you know, we want to create a more, um, 
you know, kind of equal a system of subsidization that treats, you know, different sources of health insurance similarly. That's a perfect example of something that we would want to consider. Yeah. Jefferson asked a question, will the current pandemic lead to more self-insurance? Um, well, the current pandemic lead to more self-insurance, right? So, you know, the vast majority of large employers are already self-insured. Um, so that, um, uh, so that, you know, so there's, there's not a lot of room for more there. Um, and that, you know, over time had kind of moved down through the distribution of firm size. So lots of firms are already self-insured. Um, I'm not sure whether you know, that will uh, incre uh, necessarily create um, more self-insurance, um, you know, but that was already a trend that was in place you know, prior to the pandemic. Yeah. Arthur asked the following question, does the majority of primary care physicians or organizations of such physicians support capitation payments rather than fee-for-service? If not, why not? Uh, that's a you know interesting and deep question. Um, I think that you know there there are a couple things um, going on there, right? So um, if we think you know so let's you know let's like let's array payments on a scale like fee for service is at one end and capitation is at the other. And I just want to make a point that there are some you know there's some payment systems in the middle, right? But for the sake of you know talking about this, we'll just talk about the two extremes. Um, I think, you know, prior to the pandemic, um, really, you know, when healthcare expenditure, you know, healthcare use was growing consistently over time, um, taking on a capitated payment for a primary care provider was basically being exposed to a bunch of risk, right? Um, but people hadn't really thought about the risk in the form of the dramatic shock, you know, uh, uh, drop in demand. Right, so the risk was, oh, patients will use more care than I think they will use, right? And you know, maybe I'll just end up with a bunch of really sick patients, and a capitated payment would put me at risk, right? Um, so I think the pandemic has shown that there, you know, there is, you know, there, there's, a, you know, that, you know, there's, there's a downside here too, right? There's a different form of risk, right? So maybe that will make um, uh, uh, primary care providers more receptive. Um, yeah. Other hand, right? If we think about, you know, where where is taking risk um, most appropriate, right? Well, part of it depends on the magnitude of the risk. We can think about a capitated payment for all the services that patients use, right? That is probably too risky for, you know, a very small primary care organization. That's probably more appropriate for a large um, um, multi-specialty group, for example. Um, mm -hmm care physicians that work in small groups uh, would probably be more receptive to payments that um, uh, had uh, a narrower bundle of services under the capitation um, and uh, you know maybe only their own office visits something like that so will this encourage um, more um, you know no, more uh, primary care for primary care physicians were reluctant um, prior to the pandemic um, it may uh, encourage them uh, to uh, be more receptive to that. You know, I kind of hope so, um, you know, but I have to say at the end of the day, I'm not sure. Yeah. Scott asked the following question. Will the pandemic help push the insurance market to more of a high deductible model for individuals? In other words, having individuals have more skin in the game. 
Um, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't see an obvious, um, you know, reason why it would, you know, as, uh, as, you know, Scott probably knows, there has been an increase in uh, the proportion of people enrolled in high deductible plans, you know, generally over time, especially in the last, you know, five or so years, right? So the market had already been moved in that direction. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, I actually don't, um, I, I don't know if that will, you know, push it, you know, more in that direction or not. Yeah, got it. Uh, Kate, you said earlier that it's in many ways, this current pandemic and the resulting unemployment has been a stress test for the Affordable Care Act and the value in terms of portability of the exchanges and Medicaid options, et cetera. How would you grade the act in, in handling this challenge? Um, uh, you know, I hate to do this to you, Tom, but I'm going to say I don't know, all right, <laughs> because I'm waiting for the data. <laughs> um, so uh, where are my, you know, what are the things that I'm, you know, what are the things that I'm thinking about, right, in terms of, you know, uh, how the Affordable Care Act um, uh, uh, responded or how, you know, how well it did yeah, during this time. I think one thing is, you know, how, um, how did people get into coverage, right? Like, do we have less uninsurance as the result of having the Affordable Care Act in place uh, than we had in the last recession, right? So are people able to, you know, get coverage and is this, um, is this working for folks? I think the, you know, one of the, um, uh, one of the, um, uh, you know, people who wrote in a question, you know, brought up a really good point about the shift of private payments to Medicaid. Um, you know, if people shift their coverage from private coverage to Medicaid, for example, that will, and a lot of the expansions under the Affordable Care Act are in the form of Medicaid, that, that shift in payer source will create stress for healthcare providers. So that is another metric that I'd be looking at. Um, if you think, you know, when people move from their private health insurance to a Medicaid plan, um, you know, what happens to their health? What happens to their access to the physicians? Are they able to get the kind of care that they need? Um, you know, that'll be another, you know, metric that I would think about and, you know, trying to think about how the, um, you know, Affordable, Affordable Care Act responded, right? So did people get into their health insurance? How did it affect healthcare providers? You know, are they, uh, are, are they um, um, you know, making these types of shifts in ways that are sustainable? And then yeah. at the end of the day, how did it affect people's healthcare? Got it. Great. Kate, uh, we've run out of time. I want to thank you for joining us today. What a wonderful discussion. Okay. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. Our next Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be Thursday, June 18th at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time with Ayan Hirsi Ali, who will be talking about identity politics and its tribal branches. Ayan is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the founder of the AHA Foundation. She's a best-selling author and was also named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2005. You can join her at this briefing at the same link that you signed in on today. And you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, thank you for tuning in today, and I hope to see you on Thursday. Goodbye.